trust me. Trust me. Do you trust God? Is God trustworthy? Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, reading through verse 17, but skipping over verses 10 through 14. Hear the word of God. Genesis chapter 2. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray together for just a moment. Father, we have worshiped you in song. We have sung of your steadfastness, your faithfulness, your consistency, your everlasting love that does not fail or does not change. Yet, Father, there are moments in our lives where our experience would tempt us to think differently. There are messages that come into our lives that that challenge us not to trust you, but to trust ourselves and our own wisdom and our own ability. And in this passage of Scripture, you lay the foundational building block of our relationship, which is a a building block of trust. So, Father, I pray this morning that as we study your word and as we worship you now with our minds, with our hearts, we pray that as we engage with this word, Lord, that that you would get me out of the way and that you would say what you want to say. Father, I confess my sin to you. I acknowledge that I fall short and I fail. I don't live as I should. And Lord, I don't want my sin to be a problem here this morning. So I confess it to you and ask that you would forgive me and that you would protect this congregation from anything that I would say that would be wrong. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come and that you would be the teacher here this morning. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, we're in the uh, about the fourth week of a year-long study in the book of Genesis, and the question before the house this morning is, can you trust God? God calls you to trust him, whether you've ever read the Bible or not. I I don't know. Some of you may have read the Bible a lot, some of you a little, but but one of the foundational principles of Scripture is God's asking us to trust him. In fact, God insisting that the only way we're going to be in a right relationship with him is if we will trust him. We cannot enter into a relationship with God void of of that trust. We may want to do so. We may want to say, Lord, I'll try you out for a little while and see how it works. But really in my, in my soul, I don't trust you. God says, can't go there. The question therefore is, can you trust God with your life? And I don't just mean with, you know, the little things in life, but every aspect, every detail of your everlasting existence, are you willing to put it in his hands? Is he trustworthy? In a crowd this size, I would think we'd be all over the map with our answer to that question. I'm sure there are plenty of folks who, if I handed you the microphone this morning, you would come up and and you would share your testimony, and it would be an unequivocal yes. Absolutely, I can trust God. I see how he's been faithful in my life time and time again. And there are probably others here this morning, no doubt, that would say, that is not my story. I I have been in a place where I, I just don't know if I can trust God at all. He has not seemed to me to be good or caring or loving based on what I've experienced. And then my guess is that there are probably lots of folks somewhere between those two edges of the conversation. 
Genesis 2, the passage we're going to look at this morning, I believe God is helping us see that the foundational building block in our relationship with him is a building block of trust. I'm going to give you four observations about this text as I've been studying it this week and then offer to you uh, some application as we go uh, through it. The first observation I have is in verse 8, is in, is in God's placement of Adam. Look at verse 8. It says this, um, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Now, as we go along in each of these verses that we look at, I want to keep the focus in, is God trustworthy? Can God be trusted? And you look at this particular action of God, planting a garden, setting, setting aside a spot in all of creation that is lush and is glorious and is beautiful, and then he takes man and he puts him right in the garden. He doesn't put him in the desert. He doesn't put him in the rugged mountain regions of the world. He doesn't build him a little raft and set him adrift at sea, but rather he puts him in what we have come to call paradise. So if you're asking the question thus far, just with verse eight, is God trustworthy? I would say so far, so good. Adam's in a pretty good spot. Uh, If you've been out in the wilderness at any time in your life, if you've been anywhere where the terrain's a little bit rugged, you you kind of find yourself wishing you were somewhere else. When I was younger, I did a lot of backpacking out in Colorado, and I've been in Colorado in the middle of July in the mountains and been sitting in a snowstorm. And in a tent, which is not a really great combination, you know, and, and an hour later it starts hailing on you and you've got no place to run and no place to hide. And at that moment, thinking about being in the Missouri Botanical Garden had a, had a real good ring to it. God takes Adam and he puts him in this wonderful place. And so God's placement of Adam would seem to suggest that God is trustworthy. But then let's also look at the provision that God gives Adam in verse 9 goes on to say this, And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, this isn't any old garden. This isn't, you know, I've, I've kind of got what I call tiller shoulder this morning because I was working on what we have about three or four gardens in our yard, and I, and I only am responsible for one of them, and it's the only one that isn't done yet. And so last night, even up till when it was dark, I was out there with the tiller uh, getting that part of the flower and vegetable garden ready, and so I'm a little stiff this morning, but that's not where God put Adam. He didn't put him in my backyard with a kind of an okay-looking garden. He put him in, the, in, this, in this place called paradise, glorious greens and vibrant colors and fruit of every variety and the tree of life to boot. The tree of life, which represents right in the middle of the garden, God's promise to give life and relationship to humanity. No wonder it was called paradise. And yet to the careful reader of this verse, the careful observer of this verse sees that there's a last phrase there. It doesn't just stop with the beauty of the garden, but it also introduces something rather interesting. Because in the garden, as well as the tree of life, there is this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why introduce this? Why would God put this tree in the garden? What purpose could it possibly serve? Now, you can't say this happened by chance. The author of Genesis does not allow for chance or happenstance. He states very clearly that God is the master designer that God is sovereign over his creation, that he has a plan and a purpose for his creation, and nothing happens by mistake or by chance. So you must ask the question. You cannot ignore this. 
Why would God put this in the garden? You also can't ignore the author's understanding of the character of God, which would be that God is good and that God is perfect and everything that he does is righteous and pure. So how do you stack up God's sovereignty, so to speak, his ability to control his creation and his goodness on the one hand and the introduction of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What good purpose could this possibly serve? Now, we have to realize that we're looking back into this text post what happens in chapter 3 where man blows it and we end up with sin and evil and death. We have to understand that we're looking back into the text. But, but in your experience, let me just ask you the question this way maybe. In your experience with God, has his provision seemed good to you? Has his care, has his love, has his compassion seemed, seemed life-giving to you? Or at times, does he feel, do you feel like, you know, if, if the tree of knowledge of good and evil hadn't been there in the first place, we wouldn't be in this mess? What on earth was God thinking about? And in a sense, accusing God for falling down on the job, so to speak. How could a good God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden? We were having dinner Friday night with a bunch of young couples here from Green Tree. Had a, had a great time. We went over to some friend's house and had breakfast for dinner. You ever? I love having breakfast for dinner. It was, it was an awesome evening. But we got on this topic. We started talking about God's goodness and, and whether or not he is trustworthy. And we were sharing some stories that were, that were pretty honest stories and pretty hard things to talk about. We were talking about uh, one person shared about being abused by a stepfather uh, when they were younger. You know, we talked about the real evil that's in the world and how does that match up with God being trustworthy, especially given the fact that he put this tree in the garden in the first place. Not only that, but I also want you to notice how God, so to speak, employs Adam or gives him, gives him a task in verse 15. The Lord God took the man very purposeful work here, took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Not only did God create this beautiful garden and put man in it, but he gave him a role. He gave him a responsibility. Take you back to last Sunday. If you were here, you remember we talked about uh, the theologian Derek Kidner and his understanding of what it meant to be created in the image of God. And in chapter 1, verse 26, it said, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. And Kidner saw that last part of the blessing uh, as a function of mankind to work, of God's giving us the opportunity to be creative, of God giving us the, the opportunity to produce Uh, to work with our hands and our minds, to cultivate the planet, to cultivate society. It's always been who we are as being created in the image of God. But here, God purposely, it, it isn't the work that God has given man to do, okay, to tend the garden and keep it, but rather it's the fact that his work will keep him in close proximity to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And on top of that, he's in charge of nurturing that tree. He's in charge of making sure that, that there's water that's given to that tree and that that tree grows and remains healthy because God gave him the entire garden to care for. Genesis does not say Adam was supposed to take care of all of the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God called Adam to care for that tree as well. And so Adam's employment, so to speak, God purposely planting the garden, including this tree, and then putting man to tend it, but not to eat of the fruit, seems to suggest that perhaps God is not quite as trustworthy as we think. Let's look at verses 16 and 17, because I think we also need to see God's very purposeful promise 
to Adam. Verse 16 says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. I think if you read this carefully, you see very, very clearly and very obviously that in this command, God gives man the foundational building block for our relationship with him, which is is the question, will you trust me? God says, you have it all, Adam. And Eve's going to come along in the next chapter. You both of you have it all. But of this particular tree, you must refrain from, from participating in eating because the day you do, you will surely die. In other words, to make a, a long sentence short, Adam, trust me. You ever said that as a parent? You ever said that as, a, as an employer of somebody who's a little bit younger who comes along and uh, they're just learning the ropes uh, and you give them some instructions? You know, maybe you're, you're teaching a new salesperson or maybe you're a teacher that's responsible to take care of, of new teachers or maybe you're a senior in high school the, this fall at Kirkwood High School. I know the seniors all show up a day early and kind of walk the freshmen around and show them where they're supposed to be and take care of them. And every once in a while when you're in that situation, you know, you say something and the person's like, well, I don't get that. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Why should I do that? And, and sometimes you just have to say, just, just trust me. I've been there. I've done that. I know what's going on. Just, just trust me. And that's what God is saying to Adam. Adam, will you trust me? You have to understand that God knows that Adam, that mankind, needs to be able to discern rightly between good and evil. You say, well, God could have just left that tree out of the garden completely. But evil was already present in the universe in the form of Satan, and we're going to get to him in chapter 3 in a couple of weeks. But this was already going to be an issue, and God knew that. And so in his provision, he gave man the opportunity to learn about good and evil in the proper way, in a way that would actually guard him and care for him and nurture him and give him life. Because God didn't create man to be a mindless robot. As we said, we could have left the tree out, and it would have just simply been that he never knew about it but that wouldn't have served any good purpose. So rather, God wanted man to gain his understanding through a trust relationship with him. And that's a very important aspect of God's character we need to understand. That God in his desire to reveal himself to us does so in a manner in which we can get our minds and our hearts around. And so in compassion, I believed, And in wisdom, I believe God put this tree here so that in due course, Adam might eventually say, hey, Lord, how come I I water this one just like the rest of them, but I don't eat it? Can you tell me what's going on with that? Can you help me understand that? And in that trust relationship, Adam could have learned properly to delineate between good and evil. The theologian, theologian Dalich puts it this way. The intended means by which humans were to attain the knowledge of good and evil It's either from above, from the perspective of mastery of temptation, or from below, from the perspective of slavery to sin. God's heart was for Adam to have a mature faith in him, to have a mature trust in him, to ask the questions about good and evil based on their their friendship based on their unity in their relationship, based on the fact that Adam would say, I know I can trust God. He is a good God. He has given me this wonderful place to live. And and again, next week, we'll see, and, and and he's given me this woman, and we can have this wonderful relationship together. Therefore, I can trust God. Now I want to ask the question. God set it up so that Adam could learn 
the very best way. And, and I, I'm going to kind of sidetrack for just a second. Isn't that how really good parents do it with their kids? Don't really good parents, and my, my observation has been the best parents that I've seen tend to be parents who help their children learn how to make choices and then hold them accountable for their choices. They give them a little bit more trust as you go along. Your curfew doesn't start out at 2 in the morning. It starts out about 10.30 at night. And you can play in the yard, but you can't play down the street quite yet until you get a little bit older. But as children get older, parents say, I'm going to give you a little more trust. I'm going, to, I'm going to extend you the opportunity to be responsible for your actions. In my mind, God here is being a good parent because he wants Adam to know that he can trust him. He wants Adam to know that he means what he says. And again, that's great parenting. You should never say something to your child that you don't mean. If you, don't, if you don't care if your little two-year-old runs around and pulls the pillows off the furniture, then don't say, don't pull the pillows off the furniture. If you're not going to enforce that, if you're not going to mean what you say, then don't say it. Because there's going to come a day when it's going to be absolutely vital for your child's well-being that they know they can trust your word. It might be their senior year of high school midnight when they're sitting on the edge of your bed, brokenhearted because their boyfriend or their girlfriend just broke up with them. It might be when they just got caught cheating on a test in eighth grade, and they think you're going you're gonna to come down hard and you're going to destroy them. It's at those kinds of moments when our children need to know that our word is good. And so when our kid's brokenhearted, and we're hugging them, and we're loving them, we're saying, I'm so sorry, but you got to know I love you more than anything. They got to know that's true. That can't be a platitude at that moment because kids will see right through that. And God wasn't offering Adam a platitude. God was saying, Adam, the very best thing you can do for your soul is to trust me. And this tree gives you the opportunity to do just that. Well, what does it mean for us today as we look back, as I said, as we're a generation who are post uh, the bad choice, as we'll get to in a few weeks, and, and certainly our trust relationship with God has been tainted by sin. How do we apply this? Well, the first thing I think is important to know is that God always builds relationships on trust. Okay, we said that earlier, and he still continues to do that to this day. We put the cross on the stage every Sunday, most Sundays behind me. Why? So you can see it every week, so we can know it's there and say, oh, that's a wonderful symbol of Christian religion. No, because that cross says to you every Sunday from God, trust me. God says to you, my son died on that cross. He took your place. The punishment that you were supposed to give, I meted out on him. The wrath of God that you should endure for all of your sin, I poured upon him so that you can now be forgiven. Trust me. God still works in that arena. How do we build a trust relationship with God? He invites us to trust his goodness and his grace through Jesus. How do we grow in that? Well, I'm going to give you a couple of, of words, a couple of ingredients that I think, and I'm going to reinforce them with, a, with an illustration or two. I think a trust relationship with God is built on two things. It's built on knowledge and it's built on challenge. It's built on knowledge and it's built on challenge. You got to know what God says and everything God wants to say to you is written down right here. You pick up this book and you read it on a regular basis. You're going to know what God wants to do in a relationship with you. You will have the information, but it is only through the living out of life. It is only through the challenges of the moment that that, 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 uh, that that knowledge coupled with the challenge results in trust. So for example, 
I know the Bible says, because I've read it a gazillion times, Jesus in the Gospels, and most of you have heard this a whole bunch of times, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Now, I have that knowledge. I've had that knowledge since I was a little kid. But you want to know when I really learned that? I really learned that long, 10, 15 years ago when the church where I was serving had an elder or two that really didn't like me, that, that really they were out to get me. They, they were my enemies. They really thought the world would be a better place if Tom Rick certainly wasn't a pastor at that particular church, and they set their energy to uh, getting me to move on to a different spot. They were my enemies. And it was at that moment where I got to have the lesson, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Those weren't words on a page anymore. Those were faces that I dealt with week in and week out. So when somebody comes to me now and says, Tom, I just I know I'm supposed to pray for my enemies, but I've got so much angst in my heart and they just really drive me up a wall and they're doing this and they're doing that. I know exactly what they're talking about. And I can say, well, let's talk about knowledge and challenge and how God uses that. And it was only when I learned to trust God by praying for those men that I really began to see God's faithfulness in that area of my life. I'll give you another one the Bible says. The Bible says, fathers, don't exasperate your children. Don't wear them out with a bunch of rules and regulations and controlling their lives and never letting them breathe and just you know being so hard on them all the time. Don't exasperate your kids. Now, that's, that's one that I'm still learning. I talked to Katie on the phone this week, our middle child, who's coming home from, uh, from college, and she's going to live in our house for a little while while she does her job search and gets settled in. And so uh, we're talking a little bit about things, and I'm asking her questions about how she's got all, does she have all the boxes packed, and is she all ready to go? And I'm, I'm doing the dad thing, okay? And at the other end of the phone, you hear this, followed immediately by dad, we're going to have to talk about some things before I move back in. <laughs> I'm so sorry, Katie. I've already blown it. And you're, you know, you haven't even gotten back here yet. But what was she trying to say? Dad, don't exasperate me. Don't wear me out. I'm a 23 year old young woman. We got to deal as parent, parent and peer now, not, not parent and, and little child. And you know what? She's exactly right. I had to confess that sin to her, confess it to the father, because I know what it means. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. I'm still learning that one. It's where knowledge and challenge meet up. Some of you know exactly what it means when the Bible says that God is a father to the fatherless, that God is a husband to the widow, that God cares for the orphan. You've had that experience firsthand in your life. It's not just words on a page. It's the reality of your existence. Some of you know this verse. A lot of you probably know this verse knowledge-wise. Yea, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. But some of you really know that because you're struggling with illness. It might be yours. It might be a close loved one. You've looked death in the face. You've had that experience. And you know not just the words on the page, but you truly do know the peace that comes from being in a trust relationship with God. And I could go on and on, and I'm not going to, but how I handle my money. Those of you that are in dating relationships right now, do you know what the Bible says to you about how you're to handle that relationship with the opposite sex? Those of us that are married, do we know how much the Bible has to say about marriage, uh, our sexual relationships, how we handle our businesses, our health issues, decision-making, all of that knowledge is in Scripture. It's when those challenges come our way that we get to bring the two together and trust God. But behind knowledge and challenge, There's a more fundamental understanding that we must have. And it's a twofold understanding. The first is this. We must 
remember the character of God. We put those movies on the screen at the beginning of the sermon with uh, Inigo Montoya and Aladdin and uh, the guys in National Treasure and Frodo and, and Danny Ocean and, and, and the main man, Arnold, the Terminator, um, because we wanted to raise the question. You know, somebody's asking, do you trust me or will you trust me or please trust me? And what does the answer all depend on? The answer all depends upon the character of the person asking the question. And God's asking you that question this morning. Will you trust me? So I don't know. What about your character? His character is character of love, character of compassion. You say, my, my life situation doesn't necessarily match up to that. Well, maybe there's some growing that I've got to do in that area. But God has the eternal picture in mind. And he's paid the price through his son, and he's offered that grace to us. We have to remember the character of God. And secondly, we have to remember this. We have to remember that we are precious to him. Uh, if you grew up in church, you sang the song as a little kid. Jesus loves the little children. Anybody sing that song as they grow up? Jesus loves the little children. All the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white, they are what? Precious in his sight. Now, you know what? I know your kids are precious in God's sight. I know you guys are precious in God's sight. That's not a stretch for me faith-wise, okay? For me to trust God's character for you is one of the easiest things in the world I can do. But it's quite another thing for me to believe that I'm precious in the sight of God. You guys don't know my junk. You know some of it. I share some of it with you from time to time. You don't know all of it. If you knew all of it, you might not like me very much. And it stands to reason in my mind, if God knows all this stuff, he probably doesn't like me very much either. And that's exactly what the Bible doesn't say. The Bible says that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross and scorned its shame and sat down at the right hand of the Father, enduring opposition from sinful men. What was the joy set before Jesus when he was on the cross? What did Jesus look into the future and see that allowed him to say, the cross, let's go. Bring it on, boys. Bring your best. I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. It wasn't what he saw. It was who he saw. He saw you. He saw me. Friends, if you don't get that, if you don't wrestle with that fact, you'll never trust God. You must understand that when God sees you, he delights in you, not because you're a good person, not because you have the perfect marriage, not because you're the best parent or the best high school student in your class, but because he sees the image of his son, Jesus. And to fail to understand who I am at Christ robs me of my joy and it replaces my joy with a guilt that is a burden that I was never meant to carry. Trusting God, friends, means trusting him all the way. It means that not only his character is good, but it also means believing that he loves you just like you are. Do you trust him? Let's pray. Father, I confess to you this morning that I this ebbs and flows in my life. Uh, there are moments when I really get it. I see your character. I see its glory. I see its the, the love, the grace, the mercy, the patience. And I understand that you see Christ in me and, and you love me unconditionally. You're crazy about me. You delight in me. And there are other times when I just, I just flat out forget it. There are other times I just reject it. I can't get past what I've done. I take my eyes off of Jesus and I put my eyes on me. And Father, your, your word to Adam, I'm putting you in the garden. This is a beautiful place. 
but you're going to have to trust me with every part of it. Father, help us this morning, even though our world is tainted by the wrong choice that he made that we'll look at in a couple of weeks. Help us this morning to see your trustworthiness and to embrace it. In Jesus' name, amen.